First Lady Watts, the elders, ministers, the diaconate board, my young people, my family, and to my shallow family and friends. No delay, let us pray. Lord, I thank you right now. Father, I've done all the work, Lord God, so I ask that your anointing fall fresh. Hide me behind the cross right now, Lord God. Decrease me so you may be increased. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, my rock and my redeemer. In your name I pray, amen. amen. The first word from the cross can be found in Luke 23, 34, and it reads, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. The sermon is going to be titled, Forgive Them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Looking at the word forgive is such a small word, but it's a very big challenging word, especially when someone has wronged you or offended you. It is a tough thing to do. If you just take a moment, I'm sure you can probably think of maybe one, two, three, or 22 people that probably have offended you or did you dirty. And these people are probably still on your grudge list. I remember back in 2001, I was confronted with a divorce. I went from being devastated to being in shock. Then I got mad. Then I wanted to fight. When that cycle finished, I ended up hating him. To face the unknown future with three little ones was not my picture of, and they lived happily ever after. I moved from Hawaii back to Connecticut. I remember sitting in church, Bishop up here preaching the heavens down. I didn't hear one word. But what I heard was the Lord telling me, go home, get in touch with your husband, and tell him you forgive him, and you must do this by the end of the day. Someone did tell me the Lord had a sense of humor. But I didn't laugh. The Lord just kept telling me that over and over. Go home, get in touch with him, tell him you forgive him, and it must be done by the end of the day. I just sat there and cried through the entire service. My eyes were swollen, I couldn't see. I was a complete hot mess. But the reason why I was crying was, and doing all that craziness was because I didn't want to forgive him. I pleaded and begged with the Lord, I, I'm not doing it. Nope, I'm not doing it. Why? Oh, so you, you didn't see what just happened. I don't want to do that. Let me get this straight. You want me to go and apologize, forgive him. He started it. I was so hurt. And I did not think that was fair. So, how do you forgive in a situation like that? How do you forgive when you're hurt, heartbroken, and angry? How do you forgive when you are the innocent party? Today, as we approach the cross, I want you to open your heart and hear the first final words Jesus ushers in. Here's the scene. 
At the cross, we see the master of heaven and earth as he hangs between two thieves. So much has happened to Jesus since the, de the night before. One of his closest disciples had betrayed him for money. He was arrested by temple soldiers. He was interrogated by Ananias, the high priest. He, tried, he was tried on false evidence by Jewish counsel. He was denied by his most vocal supporter, Peter, not once, but three times. He was beaten and flogged by soldiers, questioned by the Roman governor, taken before Pilate again, whipped by some more Roman soldiers, finally condemned by Pilate to be crucified at the the insistence of the local people who had been cheering him a few days before, mocked by the soldiers and crowned by thorns that has his brow, forced to carry his cross to, places his, to the place of his execution, stripped and completely expunged of any dignity, nailed, and I repeat, nailed to a board, lifted on a cross to hang from his nail-pierced hands and feet to be left for dead, the soldiers at the foot of his feet dividing up his clothes, and I ask you, if you had been Jesus and you were hanging from the cross at that, those people who conspired you and that actually those who beat you, what would you say to them? Again, I ask, how do you forgive in a situation like that? As the blood was flowing down and every breath was agony, Jesus ushered forth these words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The first saying is the prayer that was offered up for all that was there that day and all that is here today. Hanging from the cross, Jesus prayed, and I believe when they beat him, he prayed, Father, forgive them. I believe that when they laid him on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. I believe that when they drove the nails in his hands and feet, he prayed, Father, forgive them. I believe that as he hung from the cross and heard them mocking, he prayed, Father, forgive them. He did not say judge them. He did not say avenge them. He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus was interceding, taking our place between the wrath of God and us for our actions that deserve the judgment of the holy God. Jesus lived a life of prayer, and in his final hours, he continued to pray, not for himself, but for others. Jesus prayed this because he was putting into practice the principle he had taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good those who, who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That way you may be sons of your Father in heaven. These words are a doorway by which we enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus went to the cross to make up for all our sins. And he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The prayer was short and to the point. It was a prayer of a relationship. It was a prayer of forgiveness. It was a prayer of identity. It was a prayer of awareness. And it was a prayer of completeness. When the Lord prompted me to go to my ex-husband, now he's ex, I was mad. I was reluctant, but I was obedient. I contacted him and I told him, I forgive you. And at that very moment, it was like a huge weight had just came off my shoulders. I could breathe, I could smile, I could see again, 
I didn't feel guilty. I was released. But my story does not compare to the events that took place on Calvary. How do you forgive in a situation like that? The answer is simple. We forgive because he forgave us. Without forgiveness, there is no eternal life. Without forgiveness, it would be impossible for us to know God and his love. Without forgiveness, the gospel has no power and no message to proclaim. Without forgiveness, there can be no salvation, which is the very reason why God sent Jesus to the cross. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, he, that we might be saved. Jesus went to the cross to make for all sins. Jesus became the lamb that God took on the sins of man away. Jesus has been the one-time sacrifice and the priest for all of us. Jesus, no, we can never be good enough to get to God. Jesus paid our debt. He cleared our trespass. By his blood, he redeemed us and forgave us our sins. Jesus took our sins and nailed them to the cross. Jesus is still interceding on our behalf. Jesus was wounded for our transgression and he was bruised for our iniquities. His chastisement or peace was upon him and by his stripes we are, we are healed. Yes, Jesus, thank you for going to Calvary. Jesus, thank you for going to Calvary to save a wretch like you and me. Oh, what a love. Oh, what a love. He has for me that he would give his life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I have the second word from the cross. Uh, good, good afternoon, Silent. I have the second word from the cross, and uh, it's taken from Luke 23, 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Today shall thou be with me in paradise. And my title will be Proclamation, Prophecy, and Paradise. Proclamation, Prophecy, and Paradise. My text actually starts back in verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, they were crucified. And the malefactors, one on the right, and the other on the left. So Jesus, the Son of God, is crucified between two thieves. So what do these thieves symbolize? Maybe it is synonymous with heaven on the right and hell on the left. Let's see. The text actually calls the thieves malefactors. That's Greek for evildoers or criminals. Some of y'all may not have been grown up around what we call in the hood gangsters but they know who they are. Richard Pryor tells a story of his relatives not inviting him to a wedding. And he declares, just because I stole their television and proclaims I'm a criminal. So the criminal mind is down for the action of taking whatever they can, anywhere they can, and from whoever they can. 
They know who they are. Luke 23:39 says, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. This is the one on the left. So this thief has the gangster mentality and sees only what the eyes can see and says, if you are the Christ, let's get this party started. Take these Romans out. He wants revenge and escape from this ultimate pain. Now that's reasonable, but if he only had a spiritual eye, some call the third eye, he could see that this very act of death is mankind's only saving grace. That Jesus opened up a fountain filled with his blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. Death has left and will leave a crimson stain that has washed all of us white as snow. We continue the text down to 40, but the other answered, rebuking him, saying, does not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? This is the one on the right. So this penitent thief makes his leap of faith, realizing that what the psalmist says in Psalms 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we go down to 41, Luke 41 says, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So in the midst of the ultimate pain, exhaustion, inability to breathe, he's at the, and near death, but his presence of mind and soul to see his situation clearly, for the scales of sin have fallen from his eyes. And makes this the first point, proclamation of faith. Luke 23, 42 says, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. If you want something in the, to happen in the earth realm, you've got to speak it into existence. Romans 10 says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, what if he had held his peace? Will we even be talking about him? And this faith statement has ushered in divine salvation from on high. 1 Corinthians 15, 46 says, Howbeit that that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is superior. This statement is an acceptance, an acknowledgement, and agreement. He says, I know who you are, the Son of God. I know that you belong to God. God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I know that where you're going, to the kingdom of heaven. And is there, and he asked this question, is there room for a sinner like me? Second point, here comes the prophecy, verse 43. And Jesus said, verily I say unto thee, today shall thou be with me. Let's stop right there. Prophecy discourse emanating from divine inspiration, revealing things hidden by foretelling future events. Jesus' threefold office, the functions as our prophet, our priest, and our king. All prophetic revelation comes from God through Christ, our Messiah. As priest, Christ secures his people by his atonement and suffering for the blessings of God, which now looks on these people as father. As king of spiritual and, and the kingdom, he brings us gifts from eternal salvation and guards us against our enemies. And if we just look at prophecy, Revelation 19.10 says, the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is directly connected to the spirit realm. That's a place where God reveals the end from the beginning. Titus 1 says, in hope 
of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie. God cannot lie. If he spoke it, he's got to bring it to pass. Am I right about it? And now the last part of this trilogy, Luke 23, 43. Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paradise, say some, paradise is the original garden of Eden before the fall. Some say paradise is a place where the righteous dead go before the resurrection. But for me, this place is always hidey hidey and never no more goodbye. Y'all with me? Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians, caught up in the third heaven where he heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. You heard the expression, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. One thief was unrepentant, the one on the left. He got his reward in hell and he died. The other thief, the one on the right, took a leap of faith and found favor. But the penitent thief will be there with Jesus. So is this fair? He had to go through, but it only took him one day. Maybe not. But we all know that favor ain't fair. So, so what can we glean from the redeemed transgressor? Well, if, we, if, we, if he can make it into paradise, that means there's room at the cross for you and for me. That means that the sidewalk hosts has a place in paradise. That means that the drunk sleeping in the street can make it to paradise. That means that the drug addict can make it into paradise. So y'all ready to praise God for sending his son and leaving a spot for you and for me? That means that whosoever will, let him come, and I will give you rest. Anybody and everybody can come. Holy Spirit, say come, ye all that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I give honor to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to the shepherd of this flock, Bishop Watts, and his lovely wife. To the elders, deacons, deaconess, ministers, to my team, my husband, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, my family, and to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. My scripture is John 19, 26 through verse 27. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. My title is, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. This scripture can be looked at in numerous ways. Jesus, while dying, still considered that his mother needed to be cared for. While there is talk of siblings, Jesus did not bequeath Mary's care to them. He chose instead to entrust the care of his mother to the disciple whom he loved. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure he loved the other disciples, but this one's love was great. While those are worthy topics, the Lord dropped in my spirit, it's not supposed to be this way. In 2018, author Lisa Turkhurst wrote a book entitled, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, Finding Unexpected Strength When Disappointments Leave You Shattered. The book walks through her healing as she fought back from huge disappointment and hurt. It was the hurt that a woman, much less a Christian woman, never expects to feel. This is Mary, hugely disappointed and hurt. There are many times in life when the thought could cross your mind, 
It's not supposed to be this way. No one as a child is saying when they grow up they're going to be addicted to some substance or other. No one says they're going to be homeless, jobless, or childless. It's not supposed to be this way. No one expects to be battered and bruised, mistreated, or hopeless, desperate, and depressed. It's not supposed to be that way. My nephew is recovering from his second heart transplant in 10 years while also receiving a kidney transplant at the same time. It's not supposed to be that way. At what I now consider the tender age of 32, I became a widow and my children lost their father. My children's grandmother not only buried their father, but buried three of her children. No one expects to bury their child. There is not supposed to be that way. I thought I would borrow Lisa Turkhurst's title because the scene of Mary kneel below Jesus hanging on the cross was not supposed to be that way. I'm sure it wasn't what Mary had anticipated when the angel approached her some 30 odd years prior with the good news that she was going to conceive a child. I'm sure it wasn't a speck in her mind when she was delivering Jesus in the barn in Bethlehem. Just as she did then, Mary displayed extreme grace at the cross. A few weeks ago, the Women of Excellence, facilitated by Lady Watts, showed a movie, A Question of Faith. While this movie was pretty sad, it was filled with hope, faith, and love. I think I cried through most of it. What was displayed was a mother's grace in face of adversity. Three mothers, each with their own story, displayed strength in their disappointments. Each mother demonstrated extreme grace when their circumstances were overwhelming. Neither of the mothers gave up and continued no matter what to allow God's love to be revealed through them, even through hopelessness, despair, and desperation. Let me set the scene just a bit. These mothers all believed in God. Prior to the first family's life-shattering event, I'm sorry, prior to the first family's life-shattering event, they were displayed as the perfect family, a father who was a preacher that typically overextended himself to his church and congregation, a mother who reminded me of most mothers that I knew growing up, and two boys. The second family comprised of a single mother and her teenage daughter. The mother owned a restaurant who seemed to be successful, and the daughter was a normal teenager, always on her cell phone. The third family was comprised of a pushy father who was hiding the fact that his business was going under. A wife who in the beginning was the type of wife who went along with her husband to avoid confrontation and a daughter who had an unknown heart issue. Unbeknownst to them, they would soon become intertwined in a way that no one thought. These mothers had the same thing in common as Mary, grace, faith, hope, and love. Mother number one lost her son due to the texting and driving of the mother of number two. Mother number three was about to lose her daughter to a serious heart condition. The situations they were in were apparently hopeless. It seemed as if they were up against a wall that was immovable. But just when they thought all hope was over, God stepped in and provided hope. Mother, behold thy son. It may appear that I will be leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you hopeless and alone. My spirit will always be around. In the meantime, here is your new son. He will be hope for you. He will take care of you. 
A lot of times, our not supposed to be this ways are caused by us. We do wrong when we know right. We choose up instead of down, left instead of right. But in Mary's case, she did not cause her path to come to this point. Nothing that Mary did should have had her at the foot of the cross. It's not supposed to be this way. But really the question is, what do you do when it is that way? Do we throw in the towel? Do we lay in our bed with our face to the wall? Or do we have faith? While seemingly devastating, Jesus on the cross is a love story to you, excuse me, to you, me, and Mary as well. And I'm pretty sure she knew it. This love story is brought to you by Jesus. Jesus loved us enough that he gave his life so that we might have life. Mary graciously accepted this because of her love for her son. As she watched the inevitable, Mary demonstrated profound grace. I read somewhere, when you're hanging on by a thread, make sure it's the thread of his garment. Just one touch will give you what you need. Let's go back to the movie. These mothers all had faith that God was in control. They were holding on to that thread. If they could just touch the hem of his garment, their situations would be made whole. Along with grace, these mothers displayed the utmost faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13 and 13 says, and now abide faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is love. Love is what it's all about. These moms, all of them, mom one, two, and three, and Mary, loved their families so much they kept gently nudging them in the right way. Jesus loved Mary so much, he made sure he left her in capable hands. He made sure she knew that even in his death, he was there for her. He provided assurance and hope by giving her something and someone to hold on to. But Mary also had the faith that Jesus would be there, whether in flesh or in spirit. I often listen to Stephen Furtick, pastor of Elevation Church in North Carolina, who interestingly enough is the pastor of Lisa Turkhurst. Pastor Tur Steve said, faith is an expectation. It is a confident assurance that a negative circumstance still holds the potential to produce great purpose in life in my life, in your life, in everyone's life. These mothers had faith that their situation had the potential to produce great purpose. Through their devastation, the death of a child, the imprisonment of a child, and the fear of a death of a child, their faith was displayed. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These women had the faith and their strength, strength and it allowed them to have faith. It is the faith first that leads to hope. Hope for healing, hope for redemption, hope to not let go. All was not lost. The eternal hope of Jesus was evident in how they functioned. Romans 5 and 2 says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Finally, love kept them from collapsing. Jesus' gift of John as a son to Mary was the ultimate display of love. He said, I will be there for you in spirit, if not in flesh. I will never leave you. When you're at the bottom of the cross and you feel as though there is no hope, when you're filled with despair and thoughts of devastation are running through your mind, 
Though it's not supposed to be that way, God will see you through. Take your it's not supposed to be that way and turn it around. Remember, if Mary could withstand the death of her son on the cross, through faith, you can withstand your life's adversities. It's not supposed to be that way, but God will see you through. Good afternoon, Shiloh. Enjoying this program so far? My words are coming from Matthew 27, and I will start from verse 45 to 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the words we're about to hear this afternoon. Thank you for the ministers that came before and those who's coming after. Thank you for lifting up your holy name in this presence, in this place. Amen. Amen. The title of my sermon is called, By Our Side. It is close to the hour that Jesus has mentioned several times to his disciple. The hour that must, he must go to on trial for our sins. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is brought to his accusers, the high priests and the elders, who ask him, aren't you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, you say so. After being accused of uncertain crimes, Jesus was tried, led away, and turned over to Pilate, the governor. Standing in front of Pilate, Jesus is given the opportunity to defend himself against the charges brought by his accusers. Pilate reminds him, do you not hear the many accusations that are brought against you? Jesus did not respond because Jesus already knew no matter what Pilate said or do, he could not save him. Only God can save Jesus and us in our time of distress. So I'm asking everyone in this room, how many accusations have we received that were against us? How many times have we experienced false accusations for things we have not done, placed, our, placed on trial by others, even ourselves, for things that we have not done? Here we have Jesus charged for a crime from some things or wrongs that he has not committed. Yes, he performed miracles like healing the blind so they can see, feeding a mass crowd of 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. Yes, Jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. Jesus even brought back a man from the dead. But these were not wrongs because he is the son of God. He is an innocent man, a righteous man, acting on the behalf of God our Father. Knowing what we know today through our faith, some may say that Jesus was doing the commands or requests from his Father, but he was still found guilty for wrongs he did not do. 
Jesus was tested, tried, and taunted. He was persecuted, but not forsaken. He was struck down, but not destroyed. At noon, when it should have been day of light, darkness entered the land for about three hours. Around three o'clock, when Jesus accepted our transgressions, our unknown sins, sins forgotten today, Jesus surrendered to the will of God. So only, being, only doing the human thing Jesus could do was to cry out loud, Eli, Eli, lama santanai, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's also found in Psalms 22, verse 1, when King David is asking God why he abandoned him. Like Jesus, King David could not understand why he felt that God was so far from him, not able or willing to hear his petition in distress. But at the same time, Jesus and King David knew as long as they kept their trust and faith in God, who, has, who will protect them regardless of who have scorned, despised, or even mocked them? Does this sound familiar? Subjected and incarcerated for something you have not done? Placed in the circumstances that you not even know how, why, or when you got there? The pain in her is so overwhelming that you could not understand why God would forsake us, leave us when we need him the most. On the, out of anguish, you scream, why? Why, God? Don't you see me hurting? The pain is too severe for me to carry alone. Why have you done, what have I done to make you angry? You said you would never leave me nor forsake me. I do not understand why. Like Esther, we need to learn how to express our war cries in a way to capture God's attention. Esther took her trials and turned them into prayers of praise by crying out, Oh, my Lord, help me. I do not know how to go through my pain myself. Give me the courage to stand boldly in front of my afflictions. Save me from the hand of my accusers. Save me from my fears. Only you can do it. We have two different war cries, my God and oh my Lord but we have one answer. The answer that God has never forsaken, abandoned, or left us. We might think that God is angry with us, but in reality, God has only temporarily stepped aside. He is allowing the moment of reflections, a moment to think before we surrender. Once we surrender, God will step in and supply us of our deliverance. Because as we know, the weep that comes in the moment shall turn to joy in the morning. Just like King David and Esther, once they surrendered to God's will, 
with by their praise and thanksgiving, they, they knew that God would never leave them, but would stand by their side. This holds true for Jesus and us. Once Jesus surrendered to the will of God, an earthquake entered the land, broke rocks apart, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. These are some of the signs of the magnitude that God will move on our behalf if we surrender and come to him. He will cause the earth to move, the wall of affliction to fall down, and the mass that is hiding our pain to come off. There will be no more confusion between us not understanding our pain and hurt, because now we have the attention of God who has promised to always be by our side. So the next time you cry out, express your war cry, keep in mind, God has not abandoned you. He is given instructions on how to mend our pain, which is the opportunity for God's light to come shine through us, an invitation to hold on to our faith because God is more than a healer. God is more than a fixer. God is more than a comforter. He is the omnipresence, and he would never leave you nor forsake you. He is always by our side. It's an honor to stand behind this post. Let us pray. Anoint this word so that when we leave this place, we will be able to rejoice for what we have heard. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, my strength and redeemer. Amen. The New Living Translation, the fifth word, John 19th chapter, 28th verse. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. My message this morning is the commitment. When we make a commitment, we are supposed to keep it. That's our bond. Sometimes we do, and unfortunately, sometimes situations get in the way and we falter. Jesus made a commitment to go all the way, no matter what. He did not look back to all of the steps which were needed to get to the fifth word, thirst. Thirst is a sensation of dryness in the mouth and throat associated with the desire for liquid. It is also defined as an urgent desire, craving, longing. When we are in a race and there are stations all around with water bottles and cups of water for you to pick up, they, you can drink the water, pour it over your head, and let it flow down over your face to keep you cool. In a restaurant, you can order hot water to make tea. You can order ice water with lemon to make lemonade, and you also can put your own crystal light in the water for your favorite drink. If you have a large family, 
At the dinner time, you might take a pitcher of ice water and throw in some Kool-Aid to add to the meal. It's all about water refreshing your body and replenishing what was let out. Imagine Jesus trying to lift his head, looking around at the huge crowd that was there at the beginning has dwindled down to a small group. The laughing and gambling had vanished. When a small child is left alone in another part of the house and the parents leave, he goes running to find his mom and dad. Just like the commercial on TV, the son is in the bathroom sitting on the side of the bathtub dealing with the feelings that he had and the dad on the outside of the door saying, it's going to be all right. Only grandma would talk to me. Jesus didn't have anyone. All he had were two thieves on each side of him and soldiers waiting for him to come to his last. Jesus must have tried over and over again to try to pull himself up with his arms to reduce the pain he was having. Blood had dried up in his head. His hands were probably ripping and his feet were numb, but he was committed. His eyeballs had to be dry, breathing was shadow, exhaustion had already set in, but he was committed. Jesus, the Son of God, committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When insults came his way, he kept quiet. When he suffered, he never made a threat. Jesus was dying on the cross like no other criminal had ever gone before. Jesus just hung there holding on. But when he said with a swollen tongue and a whisper, I thirst, that was the commitment he had to reach to save us. Jesus committed 24-7 in our cause. That six-letter word, thirst, was for us. Yes, he was thirsty, but this thirst was also an urgent desire, a longing, a craving for our souls. This thirst was directed to his father. Jesus wanted the fellowship with his father that only his father could give him. Jesus needed to feel the presence of his father close and personal. Jesus needed his father's spirit touching the innermost part of him, knowing that he was not alone. This six-letter word, thirst, gives us living water. Jesus poured out his soul for us. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus also said, Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He also said, 
Jesus also said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This thirst welcomes us. This thirst gives us strength. This thirst gives us truth. This thirst gives us joy. This thirst gives us grace. This thirst gives us mercy. This thirst gives us love. We need this thirst. My voice is not what it used to be, because that's why I'm not in the choir, but there's a song in my heart. The song is, I need you. These are the words. Where will I go without your hand holding me? How could I live without you if I can't see? What will I do with life? How would I handle things? All that I know, I fall so short. We know, you know my end. You know my heart. When I call, you hear me. When I call your name, you're right near me. Your hand is there, right near me, and holding me. I need you, oh, I need you. We were worth the commitment. We were worth saving. We were worth sacrificing for. We were worth going the last mile for. It was a spiritual thirst for salvation. Jesus showed us what to do. We have nothing to lose. He opened the door for us. Thirst for righteousness for you and me. The commitment he made was I thirst. Thank God for I thirst. Give God a handful for I thirst. For without him, where would we be? There's only him, Lord. He made it possible for us. We could not do it on our own. I thirst. Good afternoon. I have been chosen to do the sixth word. The stage has already been set from preachers one through five. I would like to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing me to have this opportunity to bring forth your word. Allow me to stand deep, deep behind you. Let the words from my mouth be meditation to you in Jesus Christ. I have been chosen it is finished. Scripture will be coming from John 19, verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. The title of my sermon is Job Well Done. <clears throat> Many ask and wonder, what was meant when Jesus made the very clear statement, it is finished. And what was meant when he gave up the ghost? The Greek translation of it is finished is telelestai, an accounting term that means paid in full. Yeah. It's done, complete, the term or agreement has been met. It is finished. Like when a female carrier to carry her child for nine months or 36 weeks, she experienced great joys 
and sometimes great pains. But then through the process of delivery, only then one can say to pregnancy, it is finished, but a new life has just begun and a new journey take flight. Or when one looks forward to the coming of the new year, there's a process that must be completed. First, one must complete 365 days or a 12-month waiting period in order to complete the process. Therefore, one must understand that in order for Jesus to be able to tell his father it is finished, there's a great many things that Jesus had to witness for himself while he walked in a human form. Let us talk about the debt that Jesus paid. That was for all humanity. That was for all of us, the young, the old, any creed, any nationality. You see, this obligation was paid with blood and human life of Jesus to Christ when he was crucified on the cross. He was laid out to die, a slow, painful death. He was beaten, <clears throat> he was torn, he had a crown of thorns mashed into his head, blood streaming down from every opening where his body was torn, ripped, or pierced. That is the setting. Jesus was a righteous man, a sinless man, a man of truth, a man of wisdom, a man who had the power to remove himself from the cross, but Jesus remained obedient to the very end of his earthly life. The cross that Jesus owed, or the debt that Jesus owed to his father was now forever wiped clean. Let me make this clear. I want you to understand that Jesus was not wiped or removed any debt that he owed to his father. What Jesus did was eliminate the debt that was owed by mankind, and that debt was sin. Jesus had a prayer that he said that was called the farewell prayer found in the book of John 4 and 5. It reads, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the works which you have gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me. Glorify me, you with your own self, for the glory which I have with you before this world. You see, Jesus was on a mission. The, the work Jesus was sent to do was to seek out and save that which was lost and to provide atonement for sins of all who would be believers in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to, to himself, by Jesus Christ and had given to us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, but not in putting their trespasses to them and has committed to us the world of reconciliation. You see, Jesus Christ said it is finished. When he said that he was acknowledging that the job was done, completed, everything that Jesus was to accomplish was done and he left no stones unturned. From the prophecies of the Old Testament to the coming of the Messiah, from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus performed over 300 
specific prophecies from the suffering servant to the death on the cross which Jesus Christ had to do. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, predictions of the messenger of the Lord, which was John the Baptist, whom would prepare the way for the Messiah. You see, all prophecies of Jesus Christ in the life of his ministry, even his death, had to be fulfilled. Every phase of Jesus' journey had to be completed, even at the end of the cross. Therefore, Jesus was able to acknowledge that it is finished and all the suffering that Jesus endured for and from mankind while, earth, while on earth, the torture, the betrayal, and the sins of man, Jesus was just doing God's will. Jesus was orchestrating God's will by remaining obedient to the Father. In John 5, 30, it says, I can, or I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. Yeah. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Still, over 2,000 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Demons still tremble at the name of Jesus. You see, there's power. There's power in the name of Jesus. What was meant to be the darkest day for mankind became the brightest day for mankind when Jesus took the drink and gave up the ghost, which is the spirit. But one should know and recognize that this was not the first time Jesus was offered the drink. In Matthew 27 and 3, it says that he was offered to drink and he refused it. He refused it from the soldier because the drink had a nasty taste to it. And he sensed it was a drug. And he felt like he still had work to do, so no wine before his time. <laughs> you see, it was a custom of the Romans to offer a person being crucified, a substance to make it easier to bear or endure the pain of being crucified. Now in John 19, 28, it says, after Jesus knowing that all things now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Then and only then did Jesus willingly, willingly take the drink unto his lips. You see, only when Jesus realized that the ending point of his human life was now to come. His job was finished. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. So in closing, in closing, brothers and sisters, it is a privilege an honor to praise and thank a man who walked this earth over 2,000 years ago, who has a list of accomplishments too long to list. From the books of Genesis to the book of Revelation, he has done the impossible time after time after time. He was born in the manger, located in Bethlehem by way of heaven. His father is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list 
from the beginning of time. He fed 5,000 souls with two fish and five loaves of bread. He walked on water and he turned water into wine. He healed the sick, he restores the sight to the blind, and he is the king of all kings. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the ruler of the universe. I call him my bright and morning star. So stand on your feet and give your best praise offering to the one and only Jesus Christ who gave his life to all humanity while nailed on the cross. I say, job well done. Jesus says, it is finished.